good morning. It's good to see you guys. I, uh, every single Wednesday, we get uh, all the campuses together, and we get to hang out, and one of the first things we do is we tell stories. We have a story time. And so I get to hear the stories uh, of this church and this campus unfolding, and it's so amazing to hear from Caleb and from your staff and your volunteers uh, what I got to see even represented in that baptism video, that like Jesus is changing you. He's changing your lives and your relationships and your marriages and your friendships. And, and that's attractive to the community because we're all broken in some way and we're looking for something. And then every single week, we as all the lead pastors of the campuses, we get together with Kenton, who's the senior pastor uh, of all the Mariners churches. And he just coaches and mentors and leads. But you need to know Caleb, number one, is a genius. And he's amazing. And he is so proud of what God is doing in this church. He's constantly saying, "Well, guys, let me tell you this story. Um, So I'm actually incredibly honored that he would invite me to come and to be able to speak to you guys uh, this morning about everything that God's doing here. We've been going through this series called Christian. So if you've been here, you know that. If you're new for the first time, uh, really, and it's Christian with a question mark, because really what we've discovered uh, is, is Christian isn't that attractive. It's not that attractive to the world, and it's actually not even that attractive to Christians, Um, You know, you ask anybody, you know, out in the world, you say, hey, so what do you think of Christians? And you're likely, you're not going to get the, oh, they're the most loving, generous, kind people I've ever met. Um, It's usually the, they're kind of judgmental and arrogant, and they think they know everything, and they're kind of pointing their finger a lot at me. And it's like, that's kind of sad. So what we've discovered, and what Caleb says a lot about you guys is, he goes, these people aren't Christians, they're followers of Jesus, And they're disciples, and they're very serious about knowing and whoing and and understanding who Jesus is, Uh, and that's what's attractive to the world. That's what's attractive to people. That's what we're looking for in our own lives. So we're continuing that journey today, and so whether it's your first time or you've been here for the whole series, I believe God's going to speak to you uh, powerfully in it. Today we're going to talk a little bit about loopholes and ways to just sort of find our way around some rules, right? And nobody has to teach us this. Uh, We know that because we can just think back to when we were kids and maybe junior high, high school or something like that. You know, your parents, you know, hey, God, mom, dad, can I go? I want to go over to my friend's house. They're having a big party this Friday night. Well, are their parents going to be there? You know, are their parents going to be home? Well, yeah, their parents are going to be home. Okay, great, go. Then they find out their parents weren't home. They come home like, what are you talking about? You totally lied. It's like, no, they got home eventually. You didn't ask me if they were going to be home for the party. You just said, are their parents coming home? And I said, yes, I'm sure they're coming home at some point. They just won't be there Friday night during the party. We see signs that say no dogs, no skateboards, you know, and it's awesome because you see people going around and you see police going to talk to them. What's the deal? It's like, well, I don't have skateboards. I just have a skateboard. I only own one, you know, and police aren't too enamored with that whole thing. And, you know, how many of you have kids? Right, so I have three kids, uh, two boys and a girl, ages 10 and 9 and 7. And one of the beautiful things about kids, once again, loopholes you don't have to teach, uh, if they come to me and my answer is no, what are they going to do? Go ask. They're just looking for a loophole. It's like, well, dad says no, well, maybe I'll go ask mom and I'll see if I can get what I want. Nobody teaches us these things. We just sort of find our way through life. And here's the deal. Christians, not you guys. Because you're disciples, you're followers, but Christians love loopholes. All religious people love loopholes. All religions. I was in Israel a few times, uh, leading some tours there, and we have our tour guide. And I'm, you know, Israel, Jewish people, you know, they have this thing that they're very serious and committed to called the Sabbath, right? Where the whole world kind of shuts down for one day, and it's about remembering and resting and all that. 
And so we're there over the course of this and over the course of the Sabbath. And there's lots of shops and businesses that are shut down, but there's some that, like, they're open for business and it's booming. And I'm like, what's the deal with these guys? And he's like, well, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. So he's got to make a living and he's just staying open. And it's like, wow, they must have found some way to sort of get around that whole Sabbath thing. You know, and then we're going through these little towns and they're dominated by there's uh, a lot of Muslims there. And, you know, Muslims, they've got the big towers and the spires, and they're supposed to pray five times a day. That's one of the pillars of Islam. And so the sirens go off, and the call to prayer happens, you know, and we're in this place. It was like a shop, and nobody moves. Like, all these Muslim people just sat there and pretended like nothing's happening. And it's like, okay, I guess they don't take it that seriously. And we as Christians, we do the same thing. There's all kinds of stuff we know we, we think we're probably supposed to do or it's a good idea, but we somehow found a way around what that might look like. But religious people, they love this. I grew up, I was always envious of Catholics, right? Anybody ex-Catholic in here? You know what I'm saying, right? Give it up for the Catholics. So I'm growing up, Catholics, you guys have this amazing thing called confession, it's awesome. Like, basically, my friends, I'm looking at them, and they just get to go. They just live however they want to live, and then they show up on the weekend, and they confess. It's like you have this giant bucket of sin, and you come in, and you just dump it on this guy, and then you walk out with it empty, and you get to go fill it up again every single week. And I'm like, that's fantastic, until I realized we have the same thing in the Bible. There's this great verse called 1 John 1.9, okay? Now, some of you are sort of doing the Rolodex of it. 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us. It's like our own confession, guys. Like it's the whole thing. And not only that, but even as Christians, he says he forgets everything. Remember the whole as far as from the east to the west. It's kind of like our own way of just emptying our sin bucket in front of God and then living however we want. Because why? He's going to forgive. Isn't that beautiful? Well, if you're a Christian... But not if you're a disciple, not if you're a follower of Jesus. You know, we, we have a whole different way to live. You see, because any sort of religion, any sort of theology, there's always going to, you know, there's some sort of book or code you're supposed to live by. And then there's a bunch of theologians that are going to sort of create a bunch of rules around those rules to help you really live the way you want that make it okay. And every religion does this. That's what I've seen. And we build these barricades and walls, and then we start to interpret things the way that serve us. So here's a simple one. Uh, you know, for example, in the Bible, there's this, real, there's this thing called, called giving. So, you know, Monica's talking earlier about giving. And the Old Testament, it talks about what? Tithing, okay? But it's like, we don't like tithing because tithing seems hard and rigorous. And it's like 10% of everything. And it's kind of a non-negotiable. And so lots of times what we do is go, well, Jesus and the whole New Testament, remember New Covenant, and Jesus sort of did away with all that, right, or fulfilled all that, and he never talked about tithing, so that means I don't have to, right? Well, you see, the interesting thing, technically, you're absolutely right, Jesus never talked about tithing, but if you look at how Jesus talks about giving, it's actually way more dangerous and difficult than tithing. Like, we'd be grateful to take the 10% that they talk about in the Old Testament, But we sort of see, and that's the thing with loopholes. They're always built around technicalities. They're always built around technicalities. We just find ways to write things that somehow make it okay and sort of just rationalize whatever we want to do. And it's incredibly dangerous to live life as a loophole Christian. Because here's the deal. Throughout history, there's all kinds of movements that have been created around this kind of a thing. I mean, people have been persecuted 
People have been murdered. People have been, entire people groups are hated because of technicalities and loopholes that people actually want to place on the word of God. And we actually think it's okay to disregard or mistreat people that Jesus actually died for and his father actually created in his image because of these loopholes. I mean, if you, if you take a minute and you just kind of pause, you can probably find a verse that will rationalize any behavior you're looking to rationalize in life. You really can't. You can find any verse that will rationalize whatever behavior you want. And so Christians always have a tendency to ask, well, how, how bad can I be, right? That if God shows up, I can go, oh, I'm, I'm good. I didn't touch that. The line was here. I didn't actually cross over it. I, see this? It's real clean, God. I'm right here. This gets expressed growing up. If you grew up in the church and you had relationships, the question we'd always ask is, how far is love it? Right? Youth know, we know, you're just in denial. Because we ask that same question as, as adults. We're constantly asking, how far is too far? That's the wrong question. That's, a, that's the question a Christian asks. That's not the kind of question a disciple asks. You see, because we're always looking, how close can we get to that edge without falling off a cliff? That's what we're, you know, how far is too far? And so we create rules to allow us to navigate as close to the edge as possible. Disciples, followers of Jesus, you, the people in this room, right? We live and we ask a completely different set of questions as we move through life. We're not settling for Christian. We're looking for follower of Jesus. We're looking for somebody that Jesus has transformed and totally changed. We're looking for a life, because here's the deal. At the end of the day, we know that doesn't work. All that does is create this shell where we're constantly on this treadmill of trying to modify a bunch of behavior so that if God shows up in the moment, we're okay. That's exhausting. And that's not a disciple. It's a Christian. So what does it mean to find the freedom and the fullness that God's really talking about in this following Jesus thing? The good thing is Jesus actually ran into this all the time. All the time. So if you would, you can pull out your outline. You can turn to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to start there. It'll be on the screen, Matthew 15. We're going to look at the first seven verses. Jesus ran into this all the time in his ministry. People had fallen in love with the commands, but they had lost their love for the commander. And so Jesus was constantly trying to aim people back at where their love should be directed. In the first century, people got confused about the rules for the rules because the Pharisees were genius at creating them. So in Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2, we'll start there. Then some Pharisees, there they are, those religious experts, and teachers of the law, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, so they're making a big deal here. Let's talk about this for just one moment. The tradition of the elders are the laws that they created to help keep people from breaking the laws of God. And there were hundreds of these. So you think the Old Testament is exhausting in its law. The Pharisees had this oral tradition that they passed down through generations that were all about the boundaries of helping people stay true to these laws. And for them, the measure of righteousness was not measured against the actual commands of God. The measures of righteousness was actually measured against 
their behavior against these oral, passed-down traditions of the elders. Okay, so that's why they're so offended. The second thing you need to know is what are they offended about? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, there is no Old Testament command. I invite you to go home, read the entire Old Testament today. It will be exhilarating for you. There is no Old Testament command concerning the ceremonial washing of hands before the eating of ordinary meals. There is, there is commands about the priests washing and being purified and clean, hands and feet, before they did what? Their priestly duties of sacrifice and all that. So the Pharisees basically tried to take, they didn't try, they took that and they broadened it, and their, one of their main purposes in life was to take that and enforce it on everyday meals and everyday families. That somehow if you weren't washing, consist, every single person before meals, you were dirty, you were unclean, you weren't pure, you were not righteous. And that was a big deal to them. So the accusation then against Jesus is not just about his disciples. They're pointing the finger at him. And they're saying, you're doing this, you Jesus guy. You're totally upending the tradition of the elders. So what does Jesus do? He's a genius. Matthew 15, verse 3. Jesus replies, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. And so we see Jesus, he does what he often does. He doesn't just go at them and defend disciples or him or anything. He turns it around and he just asks them a simple question. It's very obvious what he's saying. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? You see, he's going, you're taking theology. You're taking the commander's intent, God's intent, You're taking that, and you're actually inviting people to do the opposite of what God's command. You're making your human traditions more important than God's commands. So in Matthew 15, verses 5, he says, But you say, remember the whole honor and mother thing, that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you're actually nullifying the word of God for the sake of what? Your tradition. There's that word again. Okay, so now listen. We need to understand what this whole honor mother thing that's happening here is. Honor in that time was not simply about revering parents. Okay? Honor at that point was about you are going to care for financially and otherwise your parents through their entire lives. So this could get incredibly expensive as you could imagine. And uh, anybody here really want to live with mom and dad for your entire life and take care of them forever? I love, my parents are here. I love them, right? But that's not what I set out to do, right? Is to go, I wanted, this is what we want. But this was part, like, of their thing. Honoring mom and dad meant this is what honoring looks like. And not only that, Jesus comes back to this later in Matthew 19, and he says the commandment, he adds this, honoring is not just this physical taking care of, you also honoring, yet you also can't speak evil against. So yes, there's a revering, but there's also this financial implication. So what the Pharisees did in their tradition was they said, look, if you just sort of estimate what you think it's going to cost you to care for your parents all of these years, and you make that donation to the temple, you actually don't have to care for them. Because you're doing the work of God through that. 
So they took and they make these laws and they basically did away with it and they manipulated it. And they totally changed it. And so Jesus is calling them out on it. He's saying, if you, you, know, you can't do that. Are you kidding me? You're saying it's okay if people give to the temple and they're not under this obligation? There's this whole rule twist. But you can imagine, they're going, hey, you can imagine just hiding behind the, I've given everything to God. Sorry, mom and dad, I can't care for you now. That's insidious. That's taking the name of God, the commander's intent of caring for one another and totally twisting it for their benefit and hiding behind it. They created this rule. And Jesus says, you're canceling out the word of God for the sake of what? Your traditions. And we all do this. We all do this in subtle ways in our lives. We find these traditions that we want to hold to. And oftentimes those get elevated to a point that seemingly they become much more important than the actual commands of God that they're built around. We've always done this. You know, you start hearing phrases like, well, we've always done it this way. That's a dangerous thing. Because what if you say, well, why? I mean, tell me in God's word why this is critical. You know, we could never. A lot of times we don't even know why. It's just this tradition that gets passed down, and all of a sudden that becomes more important than the word of God. And so it's beautiful. So here's this picture. Jesus is dealing with these religious experts, these Christians. And so the obvious question is, Jesus, what do you think about this? And here's what's great. In this instance with these people, Jesus thinks the very same thing, very same thing that the world thinks. Because in 15.7, he just says, you hypocrites. Say it really loud. You hypocrites. Louder. You hypocrites. Doesn't that feel good? Just to get it off your chest. Some of you are here for the first time going, I've wanted to say that in church my whole life. This is Jesus just going, you hypocrites. How dare you? How dare you take the laws of God? The word hypocrite literally means someone who puts on a mask to play a part in the Greek. Hypocrisy, I think it says there on your outline. It's the art of seeming to be what one is not. And the mask, he's saying here, the part you're playing, what did he always call the Pharisees, the the Christians, the religious experts out for? For being whitewashed tombs. You're inside does not match your outside. You have all these behaviors, all these laws, all these customs, everything you're trying to do and show and display to the world, and your inside is dark, and you don't know me, and you don't know the Father, and we're so worried about how we look as opposed to how we love. And Jesus just calls them out, you hypocrites. You have no intention of living out or even discovering what God really desires for you. You're missing it. It's right in front. This contrast. Jesus does not like it when we use his father's words to avoid doing his father's will. And he's just saying, you hypocrites, stop creating loopholes. Let go of your traditions and listen and learn who God truly is and what he desires for you. And we see this in the church all over today. We have these incredibly conservative um, you know, right-wing churches that, you know, their banner statements are things like, take back America. What are you taking it back to? Seriously, like, what are we taking it back? How far back do we want to go? 
Do we want to go back to the 50s or centuries? Because there's some ugly things that in the name of the church and whatever that were done in those times. Do we want to take it back a couple hundred years to when America was discovered? Is that far enough? Because what do we really know about those guys? They're not perfect either. How about we take it back to this? How about we just take it back to really discovering what the commander's intent truly is? And, you know, you've got the, the super liberal left-wing churches, too, going, let's move forward. You know, you got, take it back, move forward. No wonder the world goes crazy with us. Move forward to what? Tolerance? Tolerance isn't profound enough. Where's the love? Where's the engagement? There's something that Jesus is provoking here in this whole conversation. Because these are, these are churches, Christian churches, doing great things. But the world has to go. Do you guys have different Bibles? Like, I get that there's lots of translations, and maybe it's like the Star Wars movies or something. Like, it's all the same characters, but there's totally different plots and storylines and all that kind of stuff. Or, or is that all kind of the same? Because it seems like what you could hear out of these places is very different. And at most of it is based on tradition, rules, where we're trying to, to hold tightly to things maybe that God doesn't want us to hold tightly to. So what does he want us to anchor to? You see, my church, growing up, it was a great church. But my church had lots of tradition built into it. It still does in lots of ways. It was a denominational church. And it's like, for me, you know, I grew up, and, and we didn't just have a Bible or, or a translation. Uh, we also had this manual that went along with it. That was like, here's the Bible, but we also think you may not be able to fully understand what God's trying to say, so we actually write this too to help really unpack all these things. And it was like, I'm seven. I'm going, man, I can't even read either one of them right now very well, so you're going to have to help me. And so what they showed me is that what was really important was how you dressed. So it's like everybody's Sunday mornings, man, it's suits and ties and coats, and like, I'm seven, eight, and I've got to look right. You know, and then I remember one guy on a Sunday night, he started a revolution because he showed up without a tie. And I thought, man, the church is going to split over that. You know, and I was, I was a young kid finding my way. And so, and I started playing drums when I was like 13. And so I remember playing the drums there. And you thought that the place was going to come unglued because it was a tradition. Well, we can't, we don't have drums. Why? Because we don't, you know, people, you know, which you just get the sense that if you showed up with a tattoo on your arm or something, it's like, Stay away from him. You know what I mean? Somebody need to grab a smoke in a parking lot. And it's like, ah, you better find a new church. Really? If I'd have showed up like this at my church, they'd be looking at me like, man, that guy's pretty close to hell. <laughs> like, I don't think he knows Jesus. <laughs> he certainly hasn't read the manual. But... But either way, and, and I still, and that's just then, but, but now, guys, as I get to, to be at Irvine and, and I get to spend some time even at our other churches, people come up and they ask profound questions and they're, they're angry. They're angry Christians, right? We've all, been, we've all been there, so I'm not pointing fingers. It's not you, right? You're disciples, followers of Jesus. I know, Caleb told me. <laughs> but the angry Christians that I see at Irvine sometimes, how about that? So the angry Christians, that I, they'll come up, and they're just incensed, you know, with an interracial marriage that they have to deal with. Oh, I can't believe this. It says that Moses, you know, married a Moabite woman, and he didn't get to inherit the promised land. Yeah, that's true. They're not related, but those things are both true. 
Guys, we can find a verse for anything we want. Dress, style of music, behaviors in this world. There's lots of stuff. You know, do we get to pick and choose commands for the sake of overlooking what the commander's intent really truly is for us? And every generation, sort of the <laughs> sin changes. Have you noticed that as you look back at history? I've, I've been part of the church now for three, almost four decades. And, you know, if you've been around longer than that, just, but just watch it. You can look at church history. So, you know, whether it was, like I said, smoking or tattoos or divorce or interracial marriage, um, whatever the, the <gasps> there's no coming back from that one. That changes through every generation because of traditions, because we're holding too tightly to different things as opposed to the commander's intent of what he did. Because none of those things are new. None of those things are new to our culture. They've been around. How does this happen? How do we get so locked in and so lost in some ways on these loopholes or traditions as opposed to the commander's intent? Get lost in the behavior. And so Jesus always had a way, even in this scenario, right? But he always had this way of doing the most brilliant thing is he'd find a way to forget the commands. And let's talk about the intent of the commander. Let's let go of those things for a second and let's just get back to God. Because, you see, why in the world would God care? That's essentially the question that's behind the question that Jesus was asking. He's going, why would God care? Why would God care about your rules of washing? Why would God care about tattoos? Why would God care about divorce or interracial marriage or drums in church or sound or style of dress or smoking? Why does God care about those things? And here's the deal. He's constantly aiming back at it. Here's why God cares. The biggest picture. He has a design that's beautiful. And all of you, the entire world is created in his image. And he carefully crafted and skillfully designed every person with a unique personality and skill sets and gifting. And he gave us the gift of relationship and marriage and all of these things and sex. And his original design. You see, God cares about that. He cares about moving people closer, restoring and redeeming things that are broken because of evil and humanity and sin. But all the traditions and rules and boundaries and behaviors, those, those aren't the greatest pathway to discovering the beauty of what God's intent is. So Jesus was always going, wait, forget the commands for a second. Why does God care about this? Let's look at the intent of the commander. And he paints it at the biggest picture. And he does this in the best way for his disciples. So he's been journeying. This is you now. So he's been journeying for three and a half years with these disciples. And he's been showing them and putting on the display this kind of love and power and beauty. And he gathers them in this room because he's about ready to die. He's about ready to give his life and leave forever. And he knows this is going to be a confusing time for them. And he doesn't want them to get lost. And so he says, okay, here's the most important thing. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here's what I want you to remember. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. As I have loved you, 
so you must love. This is the most important thing, guys. That's what he says. This is it. And he, he says, this is what, and here's the deal. They got it. For like the first 50 years, they got it. And so you have these guys in this confusing place, but they're remembering. In the midst of Rome and in all kinds of persecution and Nero's parties that he's throwing in this culture, their primary filter was this John 13, and they had to constantly go back to, no way, he said to love, and we're supposed to love like him. And they had a pretty good idea of what that looked like because they had walked with him for so long. And so this loving one another as he loved was the filter they dragged things through. And it's like the church was growing. The church was beautiful in culture in the most amazing way. And then look at how Paul, look at how far Paul pushes these Christians and these early believers in this kind of love. Flip over to Romans. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul takes this. And stretches, he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Has anybody in this room ever been in debt? Right. The laugh says it all. The, oh, yeah. Okay, some of us sit in debt in this room today. What happens when you're in debt? You go to bed every night thinking about it, worrying about it. Wondering about how you're going to tackle it. You wake up every day thinking about it. This cloud follows you around through every conversation and every decision and every purchase and everything that you ever make. And the bigger the debt, the bigger the cloud. Right? And what a great picture then that he says, which is, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of love. And he's saying, go to bed every night. Wake up every day thinking about how you may love people like Jesus. And here's the thing. You don't ever pay this debt off. It never gets smaller. The reality is, as we journey with Jesus, we actually see our own brokenness more profoundly, and the cloud of debt of love gets bigger. And that's what he's saying. You have a continuing debt of love. And he goes on to say, for whoever loves others has what? Fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command they may be. I, I love Paul, right? And he just sort of goes, look, I got to sum this up for everybody here. So all the thou shalt's. You can imagine. All the thou shall nots, you can imagine. Any rules or traditions you want to create around those, all of that, just sum it all up, right? And let me just sum it all up for you in this, in this one. Every command there may be, and he finishes, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, what? Love is the fulfillment of the law. Do you know how incredibly powerful and incredibly simple this is? It's terrifyingly clear. Terrifyingly. That he takes this whole thing. And, and guys, this isn't, I'm not doing this, right? This isn't like Kyle's making this up. Like, this is Jesus. Takes this whole thing and goes, guys, here's the deal. This is the most important thing. Anything I've ever taught you, you need to remember this. Love. 
And then Paul, inspired by God to write a book to the Christians in Rome, says, guys, listen, here, the whole thing. Remember Jesus said this, and here's what you got to know. Everything in here, all of it, every command you know, every tradition you can imagine, any manual somebody hands you, anything they can do, everything here is summed up in love. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else comes secondary. The rest of scripture is commentary about that story, about love. And he's saying, don't you dare live a life that takes a verse or a passage or a story in this book and use it to unlove someone. That's not the commander's intent. This is a book that is about loving God and about loving one another. This is a book about loving your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm. So don't you dare take some verse in here just out of context and go, yeah, but see, look, that verse says, if that verse somehow is causing you to unlove somebody that Jesus died for and God created in his own image, then somehow we're missing it. Because clearly, we're called to love. Disciples don't look for loopholes like Christians. Disciples don't look for workarounds. Disciples don't say, you're supposed to submit. Disciples don't take this and go, ah, I know what this tells me. This is the sword of the Spirit. Like a lightsaber to the world. Disciples don't do that. It's a sword for what? Disciples. Not for the world. Disciples ask the most powerful and profound question, which is, what does love require of me? Not what does the Bible say, but how do I love as Jesus loved me? How do I put myself in that room with Jesus as he's walking away and saying, you're called to love as I have loved you. So, because I've loved you, love. And this isn't easier, I get it. It's simpler, but it's much harder. It's much easier to find a verse and go, ah, there, see, I told you. The most important thing is not being right. The most important thing is being loving. And Jesus makes it profoundly and terrifyingly clear in his word. You see, Christians ask, what does the law require of me? Disciples, they look at the truth of God's word and they say, what does love require? require of me. Christians live and walk through a life that, oh, that I don't know anything to anybody, but disciples, they wake up under a debt of love every single day and say, what does love require of me? Christians want to use the Bible like mace to hold the world at arm's length. Disciples, the Bible becomes a mirror where you just get to look honestly at yourself and say, what does love require of me? Christians want to talk about people in order to exclude them based on a political or a personal agenda, disciples understand that our calling is actually to talk with and move at people that are most unlike us. That's what Jesus did. What does that look like in our lives as disciples? To represent the commander, to understand his intent, to love. And this will draw you and your entire life 
into a world and into conversations and into situations that you never could imagine or even predict. The way that you get to love the world. You will have people over to your house for dinner. You will invite it over to dinners with people that seem most unlike you, but that God's given you a relationship with. You'll become a better listener. You may find yourself moving at homeless people or foster kids or adoption as God did in my life in ways that I never would have imagined. You could find yourself sitting in homeless shelters or mental institutions with your friends because that's where they're at in life, driving away going, how did I get here? I'll tell you how you got there because you decided to love. You decided to love the way Jesus loves. You see, Jesus and Paul and John and this whole book, the law is always secondary to love. Always. And for some, I get that things are tough at home. And they may be tough with your spouse. They may be tough with your friends. They may be hard. But what if we actually parented that way? What if we decided as husband and wife to love that way and ask that question, what does love require of me? Instead of being right, I want to be loving. What would that look like? And some of you are saying, yeah, but you don't know my situation and circumstances, and you don't understand, and that's absolutely right, I don't. But I'm going to answer all of those right now. Okay, you ready for this? But what if, here it comes. Aren't you glad that God didn't look for a loophole when choosing to love you? There was no buts. There was no what ifs. Because I don't know about you, my life, right, is a mess. Like God's sitting there with a book going, Kyle, have you seen your life? Because I I do. The choices you've made, the decisions, the thoughts you've had. But that's not what he looks at, right? That's not what he looks at. He chooses to love. It's God's job to judge. It's Jesus' job to save. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. And it's our job to, to love. That's what God's word says. I still give God lots of reason to not love me. I still am fighting through the fear in my life that creates uh, a need to control and be selfish. And where does it show up most powerfully? In the relationship with my wife and with my kids. That's where we're most honest. Why do you think things get get most difficult there? Because that's who you are at its core in the most powerful and profound way. So I find myself clutching to the law. When I get in a conversation or an argument with my wife, what happens? I start, I start trying to pick apart what she's saying. And I'm like, well, that's not what you said five minutes ago. You said, and I can actually repeat it back to her. And she's like, yeah, I know, I know, but that's not what I meant, what I meant. And I go, I don't care what you meant. This is what you said. What am I doing? I'm creating a loophole. I'm holding to, I'm not listening for the intent of her heart and the meaning. I'm not asking the question, what would love require of me in this moment? What I'm saying is, this is the law. And this is what it says, and this is what you said, and so therefore, and I can just pin her to the wall. That's not loving. That's not loving. I'm more concerned about being right than being loving in that moment. Where do you do that? Because we all do that. What does it look like? Christians do all kinds of things. 
not disciples, not followers of Jesus. Go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads. I actually believe that this morning, God is speaking to you as his kids. That he designed and created and loves. And maybe this morning you've never even considered that. You've thought, man, there's no way because of all these traditions and loopholes and even commands that God has, I'm so far from him. That list he has, I will never get through. And he's saying, that's not true. I love you. And my intent is to love you so that you can love the world like Jesus. So let me ask you this question. What's it going to look like for you in your life this week to consistently ask, what does love require of me? Who is the person or the people group that God's inviting you to love as Jesus? Jesus, I pray that you would speak to your children. I pray that you would help them be willing and courageous in their response of love to you. I pray that they would feel your love and your grace and your forgiveness and your kindness and not condemnation or shame and guilt, that you want to give them the strength and the freedom and the joy of a journey of loving you and loving the world the way you've called us to. What does love require? 